We have a great honor today to have uh, three people with us who are going to share how God has shown Christ to them. Uh, three new friends of the Frack family. Come on up, Yuans, if you would. This is Leon and Angela and Christopher. Uh, raise your hand if you were here yesterday. All right, a big bunch of you. Well, you're in for a, a very special blessing. Uh, you know, I've told you, Frack family, that uh, I am thankful for a boring testimony. And I'm thankful that my children, at least so far, have a boring testimony. This man and this man and this woman, they do not have a boring testimony. However, their testimony is the same as yours and mine. And that testimony is, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all pursued our own pleasure in rebellion against God's requirements. And if you are a believer here today, it's because God, in His grace and mercy, opened your eyes to your need of a Savior, gave you a new heart, transformed you, sanctified you, cleansed you, and has called you to serve Him with your life and given you the power to do it. And what, uh, what these folks shared with us yesterday of how God has done that, especially in Christopher's life, but really in all three of them, is, is just an amazing example of God's power and grace. So I hope you are ready to listen to all some, some great encouraging things uh, and, and to honor our Lord Jesus Christ through their testimony. Uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you for doing what you're doing. You know, I was thinking of, of you yesterday after I heard the story, and I thought, you know, you have big targets on your back. In our day especially, from all corners, what you are saying and the sins that you're fighting against and, and the testimony you're bearing, the enemy and our culture hates that. So thank you for standing firm. Thank you for enduring the persecution. And thank you for calling all of us to righteousness and faithfulness. We praise the Lord for you this morning. Bring the word. America, where money grows on trees <laughs> and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceive when I first came to America through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. But I quickly realized how wrong it was. <laughs> The first night I stayed at my uh, friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem near Chinatown. The even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people were in masks, ring doorbells, and said, trick or treat. <laughs> I said to myself, what have I got myself into? <laughs> Angela, my college sweetheart, came to America a few months later, and we marry the next year. I also assume, just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. <laughs> How naive I was. <laughs> we were not Christian then after years of unresolved issue and self-centered living. Our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for divorce after 28 years of marriage. 
So on that same year, May 15, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year in dental school. He made announcement. I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her of making our son gay. My son Christopher's declaration of my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do about it besides. Isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responded quite differently. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with an ultimatum to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can compare what I feel at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have cut me with a knife. He would have hurt less. In my mind, Christopher who was closest to me and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope. As my world fell apart around me, I have no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I... Uh, we're switching to three. I was... I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with the minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never been much a reader. On the train, I began to read a pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me in spite of my sin, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called the number from the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife. 
The lady was very, very excited. She told me, your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. <laughs> I told her, this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare become from now on. She has got on her side. <laughs> but what I realized, her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know, God was also work on me. So I decided to go to church with her. And a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF, Bible Study Fellowship, where we grow deeper into the understanding and love for God and his word. While studying the Bible in my church and in BSF, I also surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead as our son Christopher walked further and further away from God. For my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese-American kids. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. You see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity, and Satan can't take away those God-given gifts, but can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at my friend's house. At nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my desires, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps reserves. In my early 20s, I started secretly going out to the gay clubs. Then when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied, so I began experimenting with drugs. Now, to be clear, not all gays and lesbians do drugs or are promiscuous. Some do, some don't. But that certainly is part of my story, and when I tell you it, I have to be honest and tell you my whole story, but I also want to tell you that when you encounter Jesus, He will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I didn't have much money. And if I was going to do drugs, I needed to find a way to support my habit. So I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, where I was going to dental school. And in my mind, I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad's a dentist, 
He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parents should do anyway? <laughs> to my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. See, my mom knew that when it comes to her kids, nothing is more important than her children following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than a career. But the sad reality is, many people might go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then they'll return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401k. And in essence, often we are forcing our kids to do the same. Think about this. Our parents in America putting more emphasis upon their children, getting their homework done on a daily basis, getting a better grade, getting into a good school. Or should Christian parents be putting more, even the most emphasis, upon their children following Jesus. Nothing, my friends, is more important than following Him. But I have to be completely honest with you. I was not happy about my mom's decision. <laughs> she wasn't on my side, I felt. She was on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day, because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator because in my world I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs but we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week and I filled them with encouraging words scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I sign, love you forever, mom. But little did I know he never read them and simply tossed them into the trash. My wife and I knew the only way, if we want to see our son, we have to fly from Chicago to Atlanta, so we did. On the second day, he kicked us out. Not even allow us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused, but I left it on his counter anyway. We found out later, as soon as we walked out the door, he took my Bible, threw it into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. 
but my wife and I committed not to focus on our own hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over 100 prayer warriors from our church, from BSF, we cried out to God for our son Christopher. My wife began to pray very bold, but a very dangerous prayer. Lord, whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for eight years. Once fasted 39 days for our son Christopher. Every morning, she would literally spend hours inside her prayer closet, on her knees, reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, and praying for herself, for me, and for many, many others. She wrote out some of her prayers, and following is one of those prayers. I will stay in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stay in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I would never give up on that son. Nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as the intercede. Though it may take years, but I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. Oswald Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often answered a prayer doesn't come quickly. And this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. 
I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana, which is legal here in Colorado, right? With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlantic City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that really get me more into trouble than anything else. Well, what I did not know was that I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. Remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she had prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So mothers, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. So I was down to the bottom of the list, home. And I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, son, are you okay? No condemnation. No berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out His grace and drawing me to Himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone happened to be a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is, is in a safe place compared to before. 
And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And today, this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is, both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. And if I could be completely blunt with you, I was doing my very best to stay to myself. Because obviously, I didn't want to mingle very much with those really bad people, you know, those criminals. (laughs) (laughs) So I passed by this garbage can. If you've never been to jail before, They don't take the trash out every day. So it was a mound of, it was overflowing out of the can. It reeked. Flies were circling around it. And I thought to myself, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell, and I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking, this is the Word of God, and I certainly wasn't thinking that this is the answer to my problems. Actually, I simply thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. But as some of you know, what we have, in our Bibles is not just ink on paper, but what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight, and I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. The prison guards handcuffed me. They chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffled into her office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read H. IV positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background 
could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Ma, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years, but this news was like a death sentence—a verdict I could not accept. Hang up the phone. The pains of grief torn in my broken heart like a knife. Aimlessly, I stumble up the steps and drag my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees. A stinging tears blur my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet stream of a hymn filled my ears and repeat over and over. It is well. It is with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. My soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. A few days after receiving that devastating news, I was in my prison cell all by myself. Just contemplating the mess that I've made of my life, I lie there and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. There was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. 
But someone had written something else in the corner. And it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I might have done in the past, he still, he still had a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God simply gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I really wish I could tell you that at that moment I got down to my knees, I said a sinner's prayer, and that everything after that was perfect, like no more problems. Far from the truth. It was then that God began convicting me of my idols which were many. The most obvious was drugs. I'm in prison for drugs. That's the most obvious one. But within a few months, God delivered me from that idol. God kept bringing to mind other idols, and there was one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, and it was my sexuality. So I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. As I kept reading the Bible, I came across some passages, three in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion on this. And to my surprise, the chaplain told me that the Bible actually doesn't condemn homosexuality, and he gave me a book explaining that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding Biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you, from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming, to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. I wanted to find a little bit of shred of evidence that would actually justify, that would bless a monogamous same-sex relationship. I mean, I want my cake and eat it too, don't we all? Who wants to change? So I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made, either Abandon God and His Word 
live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality, by not allowing my desires to control who I was and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I learned several important lessons. First, I learned that sexual abstinence is actually possible. I know that might sound weird for you, but for years as an unbeliever, the world kept telling me that it is not possible, but it actually is. Who knew? Second, I learned that abstaining from sex is not going to make me psychotic or sick, no matter what Freud and Oprah say. Third, I realized that after abstaining from sex, even for a little while, a few months, I learned that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, and that's true. But don't we as sinners, don't we like to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But you know, after reading the Bible several times, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say it again. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my sexual desires. My identity is not gay, is not ex-gay, is not even heterosexual for that matter, because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. You know, before I become a Christian, I thought that if I were to become a Christian, that I would have to become a heterosexual, that somehow the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation. I would still need to resist sin. So heterosexuality is not the goal. Besides, God does not command us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did God say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Rather, God said, be holy, for I am holy. So therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That is not the goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of temptations. God doesn't promise you that when you come to Jesus, you'll never be tempted again. Jesus, is, Jesus Christ himself was tempted in every way, but he was without sin. So change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. 
Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life, and He called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison, of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and He shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I needed to learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called them, collect my parents, told them I think God's calling me to ministry, and I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of at that time called Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into me to a prison. I was so excited when I got it, I tore it open and began filling it out till I got to the last page where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison, <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So miraculously, Moody actually accepted me. <laughs> I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So. Imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, received my doctorate of ministry from Bethel Seminary in St. Paul in 2014, and then in 2011, I had the immense honor of co-authoring a book with my mom called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, a Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote it together. She wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two. She wrote, she wrote all the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters, alternating narratives, interwoven chapters. And we, were, we wanted to be able to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal. And the best part is how God and His power and His grace brought us all back together. The back of Out of Our Country, uh, each of these books, is a free eight-week discussion guide that small groups are using to continue this conversation. People are using at home to talk about it. Talk about sex at the dinner table. What a better place to do that instead of in the world or in public schools or at Holly. Don't get me started. But we, the, uh, Christian schools are even using it as a textbook. Who would have thought our memoir, our testimony, used as a textbook? We never thought that that, would, that was our goal, but it actually makes quite a bit of sense. Because parents, I hope you realize our kids are being flooded with resources on sexuality, almost all from a non-Christian worldview. And yet oftentimes, as adults, we stand by and do little or nothing. And I know 
We don't want to expose our kids too early. But it's 2019. The question that we ask, when is it too early, is not the right question anymore. The question is, when is it too late? I would rather you be early than late. And I would say, in general, we are late. I told you I was exposed to pornography at nine. Statistics say today that's average. That's not out of the ordinary. You might think, well, my kids go to, I homeschool my kids, they go to Christian school. If they're on the internet or if they watch television, Disney is no longer anything close to biblical. Unless you lock them in a tower, but even if you do, you know what you can't protect them from? Sinful heart. We need to be proactive in teaching our kids. You know, you know the main responsibility to teach sex to our kids does not belong in the hands of the public schools. Amen? One person got that. I'll say that. I don't know if you, you fully heard me. I'll say that again. The main responsibility to teach your kids sex and sexuality does not, does not belong in the hands of the public schools. Amen? And it does not primarily belong, primarily belong in the hands of the youth pastor or the youth leaders. Not to say that uh, they should talk about, public schools shouldn't, youth group they should, and parents, you sh I don't think you should be pulling your kids out because would you rather them, I find it surprising that parents will pull their kids out of youth group but leave them in public school. So in other words, you want your kids to learn unbiblical sexuality, but not biblical sexuality. And I know you might think, when is it too young? But should it not be the biblical perspective that they hear first? You know whose main responsibility to teach sex and sexuality? You know whose that is? Parents. And I'm going to break it down. Mothers and fathers. I'll say it again. And fathers. Too often, fathers are silent. I know it's uncomfortable to talk about sex, especially as a man. If you have a daughter, that's probably, that's the last thing. You'd rather eat, I don't know, shards of glass. Swallow that pride, swallow your discomfort, swallow whatever it is, because I would much rather you, Dad, talk to your daughter and your son about sex before the world does. I bet if you even have a kindergartner, first grader, they already have heard about gay, straight, all these things already, not from home, from their friends, from television, so let's talk about it. Let's be the first. Wouldn't it be amazing you talk to your kids? Hey, Billy, has anyone talked to you about sex yet? No. Praise the Lord, let me be the first. Wouldn't that be amazing? 
And I'm going to add something else. It's not just parents. I'm going to make everyone feel uncomfortable here. Grandparents. You know why? You have too much time on your hands. <laughs> but think about this, grandparents. Just think back when you were, grand or when you were teenagers. How much did you listen to your parents when you were a teenager? Maybe grandparents, you have more of a listening ear to your grandkids than the parents do. Are we using it for the glory of God? So let's be proactive. One time this grandmother went back to our book table. I mean, she made a bee. We were in rural Oklahoma, of all things, and she made a beeline back to our book table, and she said, I need 10 books. <laughs> and I was like, wow, you just need one. She's like, no, young man, I need 10. One for myself, nine for my grandchildren, and I'm going to mail everyone a book tomorrow. I'm going to read it with them, and I'm going to discuss it with them. A grandmother. That's someone who's actually taking seriously the God-given responsibility we all have that we have forced, we have forfeited, we have not done anything and forfeited into the world and say, you take it. I think it's time we take it back. I think it's time we take it back. Amen? Because silence is no longer an option. My newest book called Holy Sexuality in the Gospel helps us to think through this issue of sexuality because too often we think about sexuality as don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. But there's very little talking about the goodness of sexuality. I call it holy sexuality, which is chastity and singleness or faithfulness in biblical marriage between a man and woman. And that is really good news for all. So I flesh that out in my new book that also has... Uh, a, a study guide at the back that uh, several Christian colleges and universities are using it, and people are using it to dig deeper on this topic. But what's so amazing is how God in His faithfulness has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. Now, my parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the, around the world as a two-generational ministry talking about God's grace and God's truth on this issue of sexuality. And then as if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God has this sense of humor because he's brought me back to Moody where I'm now teaching in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? <laughs> but God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. You know, I look back upon the years that the locusts have taken away and Years that were far apart from Christ, and I see a lot of bad decisions that I've made, one of those being HIV positive. But I realize something. I'm no different than any of you. All of our days are numbered. Not one person here in this room, young or old, has been promised tomorrow here on this good earth. But do you know it took contracting this virus for me to realize a very important truth? That as a child of God, I must live with a sense of urgency. You know this world we live in today, it's a crazy world. Our country can't agree on anything. We're at each other's throats. Overseas, threat of war, threat of terrorism, orphans, widows, tsunamis, earthquakes, disease. When I look at the world today, I'm convinced this world doesn't need another good Christian, a good Christian who might go to church every Sunday, nice person, 
but doing little for the kingdom of God. We don't need another one of these good Christians. But what this world needs, what this world demands, are great Christians. Christians who don't settle for mediocrity. Christians who don't really care what the person on the left says, what the person on the right says, but they're pleasing, they want to please their heavenly Father. Christians who are living with a sense of urgency, who know that they've been crucified with Christ and they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. Christians who are living with a sense of urgency. Our days are numbered. Are we spending it chasing the vain things of this world or are we using it to chase after Christ? Because there will come one day I promise you, for every one of us, whether you're ready or not, we will stand before our Creator. And my hope and prayer is He can look at you face to face and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for every good and perfect gift. Lord, we know that we have gone our own ways. Father, I pray that you would forgive us. We confess. Father, help us to turn from chasing after things that really don't matter and help us to run after you. Help us to pursue everything that matters. Help us to lift up your kingdom. Help us to tell others about you, oh God. I pray for the prodigals in our life, Lord, that as impossible as things might seem, Lord, that we would look past those and look to the impossible God who does the impossible. God, we praise you that you never gave up on us. Help us, Lord, to live each day with a sense of urgency. We pray all these things in the mighty, matchless, beautiful name of Jesus. And the people of God said, amen.